the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We can't allow our culture to dictate what we accept as no longer acceptable. Welcome to Core Truth Radio, a radio ministry of Core Church Los Angeles with pastor and Bible teacher Steve Wilburn. Pastor Steve will be teaching us God's truth right from the Bible with lessons that we may not want to hear, but we need to hear. Let's jump right in today's study. Well, we're going to get into part two in John chapter seven. I've entitled this message, Waiting. Have you ever had to wait? Well, of course you have. We've all had to wait. And at times it seems like wherever I go or whatever I have to do, there's one thing that's always guaranteed for me. I'm going to have to wait. And I'm not necessarily a patient person. It's like going to Disneyland on a busy summer day. I remember standing in line for the Indiana Jones ride. The line was so long, it was down the middle of the park to the Jungle Cruise. I'm thinking like, oh my goodness, it took me 45 minutes just to get to the beginning of where the line was supposed to start. I think I finally got on the ride like six hours later, I think. Uh, Anyway, I'm thinking at this rate, I'm going to go on three rides at Disneyland. That's like 40 bucks a ride. (laughs) It's like something's wrong with this picture. But anyway, everywhere we go, there always seems to be a line. A recent survey estimates that Americans spend 37 billion hours in line every single year. I think that's true because I always end up in the longest line, like at the grocery store. If you have just a few items, I know for me, I'll go in the 15 items or less lane. And there's always someone there that's got 16 or 17 items. That's right. How do I know that? Because I'm counting while I'm in the line. And admit it, you count too. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Then of course, you know, there's uh, going to the bank. And have you ever been in a bank line that's been taken for ever and then you walk up to the window and the teller says, oh, excuse me, I'm going on break. Yes, that's what I was hoping to have happen. I was hoping that you would help me so I could get a break from this line and go home myself. Yes. Or how about when we call the dentist with a toothache and the receptionist says, I can squeeze you in in about six weeks. Oh, really? I was kind of hoping like six minutes. Okay. I'm in pain right here. And then there, of course, there's the granddaddy of all waiting periods. For there are no lines anywhere on planet Earth that can compete with the lines at the local DMV. That's right. Yes, they wrote the book on making our lives miserable. First, you wait in line that wraps around the building for like an hour just to get a number that they're going to call some four hours from now. Yes, we all have to wait in lines from traffic jams to our next paycheck. But today... As we open God's word, we'll see how Jesus had to wait a little longer himself, but he chose to wait. 
And why is that? Because he had a plan. And every day that Jesus chose to wait, every day that he put off the plans of the religious leaders from seizing him was another day that Jesus could touch the lives of us. Another day that he could set more examples that would impact his society that would trickle down all the way again to us here today. Yes, Jesus had a plan. He had a true purpose. Now, as we continue in our study through the gospel of John, we left off, as you remember, at the earlier verses of chapter 7, where Jesus was laying low. He was kind of going undercover a little bit. Why? Because the religious leaders had already put word out that they wanted him dead. They wanted him out of their lives. And why is that? Because people, they were flocking to Jesus. For Jesus was so much different from the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders, they were intelligent of that day, yet they seemed to be so heartless. The religious leaders of that day had the appearance of holiness, yet they were filled with hypocrisy. They spoke the word of God, yet they spoke in such a way that left the people empty and wondering really where they stood with God, which caused them to become totally disconnected from the people. For they embraced their religious power and their position over their true calling from God to be loving shepherds over the people of God by teaching them the truths of God's word to give God's people an understanding way. It was Moses, and he was encouraged by his father-in-law, Jethro. But Jethro comes to his son-in-law, Moses, and he says, Moses, you got a problem here. What was the problem? Because he noticed that people would line up from morning till night to talk to Moses because they had problems. Remember, they were wandering in the wilderness for some 40 years, and there was like some 3 million people that came out of Egypt. So everyone had a complaint, so they would line up forever to talk to Moses. So this is what Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, had to say to him in Exodus chapter 18, verse 20. He says, teach men, teach them the statutes of God, the laws, and make known to them the way which they are to walk and the work which they are to do. So you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall teach them these things to the leaders over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens, and let them judge the people at all times. So he says, hey, Moses, you gotta, you got to raise up men. you got to somehow teach them in a way where they can get it, where they understand what it means to walk with God. you got to teach them right and wrong so that they can go to the people in groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and even tens and teach them so that they understand what is right and wrong. Well, God's people drifted away from this simple way of teaching God's truths. And that was the end result of what now? What? What happened because of that? The people didn't understand the truths of God. That's the bottom line. They didn't get it. And the synagogue ended up being the very place that God no longer dwelt. Could you imagine going to church and God wasn't there? It's not that God didn't want to be there. It's not that God didn't want to be found by his people. But rather, the priests had turned a relationship with the living God into nothing more than some dead religious ceremony. 
I was having my devotions this morning and I was reading in Hosea and I noticed this verse that I never really noticed before. And that God was calling out the prophets and the teachers of Israel. He says, you prophets are fools. And he says, you inspired men are demented. Why? Because you're engrossed with your own sin. And they weren't teaching God's people. Do we not see this today? Do we not see, you know, where pulpits, where people are not teaching the truths of God's word? How many could God call on the pulpits today and say, you prophets, you inspired men, you're fools and you're demented because you're not calling out sin to my people. See, you can't judge a church by its size. You can't judge a church by how cool it is and how many cool people go to it. Because if they're not teaching the fullness of God's word, then therefore the people are not living in a way that God wants them to live. Let's not forget what God said. He says, it's not that my hand is short that I can't reach you. It's not that my ears dull that I can't hear you. But your sin has made a separation between you and me. So if the pulpit, if it's not being taught the word of God, where what people are living in today and sin, if you're not calling that sin out, then how are the people going to know? Then people are going to be like, well, hey, we go to church every Sunday. We're all good with God. No, you're not good with God because there's sin in the camp. See, the very place that God wanted to dwell was in the midst of his people, but his people were not being taught because of these religious leaders were not teaching the truth. So Therefore, the church became lifeless, just like, again, we see in today's church. But where does all this start? I would say two main areas. Number one, it's when a church rejects the Bible as the authoritative written word of God by not accepting the word of God in its entirety. See, we have to take the fullness of God's word. God's word is not like options on a car. Yes, I want the sunroof cruise control, and GPS. Yeah, It's like, no, you can't just pick and choose what you want and what you don't want. It comes as a whole package. Let me give you a perfect example of where many churches today will only teach a portion of God's word. So you take the Sermon on the Mount. That is the longest recorded message that we have that Jesus gave. Now, he might have gave longer messages than that, but we only have this recorded as the Sermon on the Mount. It takes up three full chapters in Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It consists of 111 verses. Now, what the church does today, many churches, not our church, but many churches do, is they'll only take one verse out of that. And that is Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And it says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So you take that one verse, and and what do we call that one verse? The golden rule. It's like, just do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's how I live my life. I live it according to the Sermon on the Mount. I do unto others, so I just love people. And when I just love people, you know, that's all I'm required to do. I'm treating you like I want you to treat me, and therefore, I'm a wonderful Christian. Uh, Okay, hold on. What about the other 110 verses of the Sermon on the Mount? What about when God starts pointing out sin? What about when he starts taking every aspect of things that we knew, that we thought we knew, where we could brag and say, well, I, you know, obeyed the Ten Commandments. Like the Bible says, thou shall not murder. I have not killed anyone as we pat ourselves. I'm such a good person. It's like, well, hold on. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took the law and he made it even more difficult. 
Because he says, it's about the spirit of the law. He says, you've heard it been said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you look at your brother, you hate your brother, it's as if you've already killed him. Then he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Oh, how many of us said, well, I have never slept with another person other than my spouse. But Jesus said, but if you just look at another person and you lust after them, it's like you've committed adultery in your heart. So there's so many other aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it ends in chapter 7 with him saying, there's going to be many people that come to me in that day. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? We fed the homeless. We did all these things. We prayed. Miracles happened. All these things. And Jesus looks at them and says, excuse me, who are you? What do you mean, who am I? I did all these miracles. I was one of your prophets. No, I don't know you. Depart from me. How horrific would that be? To be raised in a church where you were never taught the truth of God's word of what sin is and what sin isn't, and you just live by, oh, the golden rule. I just love other people. Oh, just love everyone else, and that's it. No, we have to live by the commandments of God. And when he tells us not to do something, we're supposed to not do that. And that's what God's word says. So what we see here in the world today is it's the beginning of the end when a church does not teach the entirety of the Bible. Again, picking and choosing what we want. We can't allow our culture to dictate what we accept as no longer acceptable. Oh, well, in this culture, we do this now. And well, we live with our, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends, and we do all of this stuff. It's like, it's what everyone does. Doesn't matter. That's not what God says. God says you shouldn't have any sexual relations until you get married. And so all of a sudden you can't change what God's word says for God never changes, nor does his word change. Let us not forget what the Bible says about the Bible itself. In second Peter 1 20, he says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men that were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Bible is not one book. It's 66 individual books that were written by 40 different authors. God allowed those authors to have their own personality come through in their own book, but yet at the same time, the words that they wrote down were inspired or literally God-breathed. So he says, these books, everything that's in them, you must live by. And it's like, if we don't choose to live by that, and if we choose to cherry pick, let me see, I like that, I don't like that, this is comfortable, this doesn't fit anymore, I've outgrown that. Okay, and when we do this, all of a sudden God says, uh, you better be careful when you do that, because this is what the Bible says in Revelation 22. So what is that? So you have 66 individual books, so you get to the very last, the 66th book, the last book that was written in some 95 AD. And you go to the last chapter, chapter 22, and you go to the last few verses. And what does he say when you hold this book in your hand? He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to them the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words that are written in the prophecy of this book, God shall take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city that is written in this book. 
So he says, who's going to get to heaven? Well, the one that doesn't take away from the words of this book and the one that doesn't add to it. That's who gets to the holy city. But if you start picking and choosing, all of a sudden, you're not going to go to the holy city. You're not going to go to heaven. Yes, number one, without question, we must embrace God's word in its entirety. And number two, pastors must have vision. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 18, it says, where there's no vision, my people perish. Today, many religions have dried up. They no longer teach about sin and how it separates us from God. How we need to repent and how we need to receive forgiveness of our own sins. So we can have what? We can have restored fellowship with our maker so that we can have hope for our future. Isn't that what we want? Don't we all desire to have hope for our future? Remember when David had sinned? You know, David, you know, King David, he was the greatest king that Israel had ever known, the greatest earthly king. And yet God even said this about him. He is a man after my own heart. But when he sinned with Bathsheba and he laid with a woman that was not his wife and he had all the things that he had done wrong there, it's like he chose to walk away from the Lord for like a year. And in that time, he started to shrivel up spiritually. He started to die on the inside. In fact, you could say that he had a personal collapse and that's using his own words. And that's why when he finally cried out in Psalm 51, the Psalm of repentance, he says this in verse 10, create in me now a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. He said, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with the willing spirit. See, the joy had left him inside. There was no more joy. He was walking through the motions. He was walking through life. He was a king. He had all that money could buy. He was one of the wealthiest men that the world has ever seen. King David didn't have gold by the ounce. He didn't have it by the pound. He had it by the ton. He had gold by the ton. He had everything that money could buy. He had multiple wives, multiple concubines, which were living girlfriends pretty much. He had everything that a man could ever dream of. But yet his joy was shriveling up on the inside. I wonder how many of us could pray a prayer like David prayed. David was seeking after the Lord. He says, I need my heart washed. I need a clean heart inside. I need one that is refreshed, one that's no longer tainted with sin like I've tainted it. He was seeking a new heart from God, one that was new and fresh inside. And that's exactly what God gave him. And it's exactly what God wants to do for us still here today. When we truly repent of our sin, repent just means turn and go a different direction from your sin. And when we choose to do that, I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore, if any man, if any woman be in Christ, they become a new creature. All things are passed away. Everything becomes new. Where else can that happen in the world today? 
People can walk into church. They can sit in this service here today. They can walk in like, hey, I just got out of the shower. I got my best clothes on because I knew I was going to church. I got my hair done. I got all this. I'm looking good on the outside. Yet on the inside, you could be so corrupt, so filled with sin, and so miserable with no joy in your life. You could walk in this way. But with Christ, you could walk out restored, renewed, refreshed on the inside. Only God can do that. Nobody else can do it. But it's triggered by our willingness to humble ourselves before God and to say, oh, God, I've sinned. I've done things that are wrong, and I know it. And what we do, oh, my goodness, God restores us. But this has not always been taught in our culture. It's just like it wasn't being taught in our text here today in chapter 7 of John. Yet Jesus... The God-man, he was different. He made total sense. He talked to the people in a way that they could understand what God desired and wanted. He made a relationship with God seem obtainable to them. He put it in reach of the average person. Well, as we saw in our last study in John last week, Jesus was not going to go into Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of the Jews, which is a Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This was the third major feast that the Jews would celebrate each year because his brothers were asking him to go in. Now, why did he say he wasn't going to go at first? Because in verse 1, it says that the Jews, the religious Jews, by the way, they're all Jews here. It was just the religious Jews that were so jealous of them. They were seeking to kill him. And in verse 6, Jesus says, it's not my time yet. My time is not at hand yet, meaning I came for one reason, to die on the cross. But I'm not going to die yet. I've got many more things to do before I allow them to nail me to the cross. But Jesus ended up going kind of incognito to Jerusalem anyway at the right time. Picking up from where we left off last week, we'll pick up in John chapter 7, verse 11. I'm reading now the New American Standard, of course. It says, so the Jews were seeking him, who? Jesus, at the feast, and they were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Oh, Jesus is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. Well, as the people gathered to celebrate the seven-day feast in Jerusalem, again, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is the same thing, the city was packed. And the topic of conversation, again, was nothing but Jesus. Even the religious leaders were asking, well, where is he? As the people were debating who Jesus really was. Some said, well, he was a good man. While others thought he was nothing more than a troublemaker. It sounds just like today, does it not? For people are still talking about Jesus. Some say he was a good moral leader. He's one to be admired. Others will say, wait a second, he was more than just a good moral leader. He was a prophet. He was sent from God. While others would claim, nah, he never even existed. Jesus is a figment of your own imagination. He was a fairy tale. Yet still others say he was just a mere man that was married to a woman named Mary Magdalene from the city of Magdala, right there off of the Sea of Galilee. That's what happens when people give themselves 
books of fiction and they read them as fact. Remember when the Da Vinci Code came out? Remember they came out with the movie with Tom Hanks and all of that? That was all based on this book whose author's name was Dan Brown. And he used the Gospel of Philip. Now you might be thinking, Gospel of Philip? I don't remember a Gospel of Philip because there wasn't one. Okay, but he used that for a resource for his information. And what Dan Brown leaves out is the reason why the, quote, gospel of Philip was not included in the Bible is because the gospel of Philip was written by Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics were this group of people who claimed to have gained spiritual knowledge by self-illumination. Now, how did they get the self-illumination? Man, who knows what they did, but they got themselves all wound up and they self-illuminated themselves and they wrote down what they came up with. It's ridiculous. This is a bunch of mumbo jumbo, but people will take that and people took the Da Vinci Code like, oh, this is a serious thing. No, it's just, it's, it's heresy at best. But getting back to our text here in the Bible, the Bible says this, that the people like today debated who Jesus was. But who did Jesus say that he was? Okay, let's forget what the people were saying who he was. Who did Jesus claim to be? Jesus not only claimed to be God, he was God. Thanks for joining us for Core Truth Radio. You've been listening to pastor and Bible teacher Steve Wilburn of Core Church Los Angeles. If you'd like to hear more messages by Pastor Steve, download the Core Church Los Angeles free app available on iOS and Android. Core Truth is sponsored by and a listener-supported outreach of Core Church LA. If you have been blessed by this program, consider supporting our radio ministry by texting Core Church LA, that's Core Church LA, one word, to 77977. You can also give via our app or online at corechurchla.org, as well as writing to our P.O. Box 34789, Los Angeles, California, 90034. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.